best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. On the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Brickyard Week is upon us. Technically speaking, the Verizon 200 and the Gallagher Grand Prix, along with the Pennzoil 150. The three races that will be taking place this weekend on the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Jake Query, Mike Thompson will join me here in just a moment. This is Beyond the Bricks, our look at the stories beyond exactly that, the bricks of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Before we begin, uh, because I'm assuming that he probably wants to get out of here, but you just heard him mention with Kevin Lee, and I wanted to parlay off of that. Um, I'm actually fairly proud of this because it shows a maturation on probably the behalf of both of us. But Sam Rumsa, who has been the producer of this program, he is the executive producer now for the IMS Radio Network. Is that your technical title, executive producer? Well, Mark called me that once, so I like to roll with it. So, yes. Only producer, which yeah. makes you the executive producer, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? Um, and in addition, you have obviously been the producer for Trackside with Kevin. You've been the overnight um, you know, producer of content for MS Communications for, I don't know, what, five years, which feels like 15 when you're working overnights? Only like two and a half. Okay, well, we'll make but, it five. Sure. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot, Sam Rumson, with this trivia question. I guess this goes a little bit beyond the, uh, you know, beyond the bricks. Uh, do you recall exactly how the two of us met? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys, you and Derek Schultz mm-hmm. uh, spoke at IU when I was a freshman there. And I sent a very, after you guys spoke, I sent a very professional sounding email and, you know, hi, Mr. Query and Mr. Schultz, I would like to intern for your radio show this summer. And then I get a call from 317 number at 11 o'clock at night and it's you saying, hey, so you want an internship? I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. So I don't recall speaking at your class. I recall this. I recall you correcting me on Twitter. That happened too. Yes. And so, and I snapped back at you. I was kind of a jerk about it. Um, and was a little bit arrogant in my response. You had corrected me, I believe, on a factual error, maybe about IU basketball. I don't remember the exact content. Um, but I basically snapped back kind of out of – it was not appropriate probably, the the level of, of vinegar that I had in my response. And so you kind of snapped back or you – I don't know. I, I appreciated and I respected your reply. I remember that. And so, truth be told, that was actually, that was the number one thing uh, where I was like, you know what? Like, I think this guy kind of has it in him a little bit because I thought you were very professional in your reply. Uh, So, anyway, you interned for us, and then uh, you took everything from there. You started going to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway during race broadcasts when you had no job right, with them, right? Correct. Yeah, I was was working for another station in town, but as a producer, but not a job yet with IMS radio. And so you went in there, um, you met Chris Pollock, who was our, you introduced um, me to him. Yes. General manager. And basically just did what I think a lot of young guys should do. And that is, you basically said, 
what can I do to help out? And you didn't worry about necessarily what was going to come your way in the beginning for that, and you just kind of waited your turn, right? And then eventually, we once we couldn't file a restraining order anymore, <laughs> we just got tired of having you around and figured, well, we might as well pay you for it, right? And that has to hire him, yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty much, yeah. Uh, and then the thing that I think I'm the most proud of that you followed the advice on, and this I can't emphasize enough the pride <laughs> that I have, almost paternally speaking, about this. Then you went out and um, found yourself a significant other that's far smarter than both of us and makes more money, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I uh, lengthened my career in radio with uh, with my when I found uh, Sarah with with her career. So Sarah has graduated from law school at Stanford. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. And so she uh, is starting out. What what sort of law? What kind of law? Uh, not sure the type of law, but she's got a uh, judicial clerkship in Columbus, Ohio. So. Be moving there next week. We'll still be uh, coming back on weekends to produce for IndyCar, and we'll keep that job, job as long as they'll have me. But uh, moving out of Indianapolis, so this will be my last night on uh, Trackside and Beyond the Bricks for now. But uh, as I mentioned last hour on Trackside, Indianapolis still in the long-term plans, and uh, we'll always be home. By the way, we drew straws on this, and Michael Young, that's whose couch you're sleeping on when you come back to do the races, <laughs> right? When you come back from Columbus for the weekend. I don't, know, who, you, I don't know who's more of a loser in that deal, myself or Michael. <laughs> that's a, no question about it. Hope you're ready to listen to Quiet Riot at 2 a.m. Uh, Sam, we appreciate the efforts. Thank you very and, much. Um, you know, obviously, I'll be seeing you around, but... Um, you know, you're one of those guys kind of as this show is based upon telling the stories beyond those names that we know that are in the race car, you know, the, the mechanics, the behind the scenes. And in terms of your responsibilities, not only for this show, for trackside, but the biggest of all being your mastery of producing. And I don't know how you do it, but writing the audio levels and knowing when we need to go to break and when we don't and all that for the IndyCar broadcast and Indy 500. Um, glad to have you around because there's no way I could do that. It's it, You've got to have like ADD on steroids. So um, pretty impressive. Hey, I, I love the job, and, and it, it's an honor to get to work with you guys, and uh, I'll, I hope to keep doing it for as long as I can. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real joy. So I appreciate all the kind words. And So when do you move? Next week. Okay, well, I'm not helping. I hope you got movers. <laughs> I'm not Keith Hernandez. Um, but, no, we'll, we'll look forward to, to having you around, especially when you come back to do races. Mike Thompson joins me now on this program. Speaking of Columbus, Ohio, he's over there right now. Um, Mike, an Ohio native. And, Mike, that parlays nicely into what I wanted to do to set up this show tonight. We're going to talk uh, more about cup guys that have run the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and that have uh, been tempted by the Indianapolis 500, even though they were successful stock car drivers first and foremost. But before we do that, I just got to thinking on the way in, Mike, you know, people that are listening to this show that maybe did not hear us in the month of May for the last two years or are listening to it on podcast form that didn't hear this when we did so in the beginning, tell me, Mike Thompson, your story in terms of the journey that got you to become one who would be talking in Indianapolis radio as an Ohio native about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. <laughs> Oh, man, that's uh, a lot of that's due to my Uncle Ron, my Uncle Bill, my dad. Um, they they used to come down for for qualifying weekend every year. And and um, I, I, I was lucky that I was I lived on the same street as a lot of my family. And so I only lived a couple doors down from my Uncle Ron. And my Uncle Ron was really, a, you know, a 500 trivia guy as well. And, you know, and he loved listening to Donald and and he you know, I'd go down and he'd tell me a story about Bud Tinglestad, or he'd tell me a story about Billy Foster and these different names and stuff. And, and as a kid growing up, it was just so cool. Um, 
you know, I really gravitated toward the the 500 and my dad my dad was more interested in nascar the first race i ever went to actually was the uh a race in 1977 we went to a nascar race at michigan international speedway and uh that was fun i mean i got to go to a cup race and see richard petty who was a hero of mine and but i really loved the 500 since i was a kid and my uncle ron told me when i was 12 i could finally come with the family for time trials and I finally got to go to the, the speedway for the first time. And it was just, it was just magic for me. And, and then that's the first time I heard Donald. And I was like, wait a minute. I mean, I knew as a kid, you know, you have dreams as a kid, you're like, Oh, I'll be a race car driver or I'll be this or that. Right. And I knew I never had the talent to be a race car driver or anything, you know, like that. But I, I heard Donald for the first time and I said something to my uncle. I remember vividly saying something to him a, a couple of years afterwards. I think I was like 13 or 14. And I said, I said, there's a guy on the radio in Indianapolis and his job is to talk about the drivers of the past. That's the guy I want to be. I want to, I want to know that guy, you know? And, and so we, you know, we shared that passion and it's just fun because, you know, right before the show today, I spent 45 minutes on the phone with Donald and, you know, it got to be, you know, if you'd have told me as a kid, I'd got to be, you know, friends and, and, you know, Donald's such a mentor of mine and, and, uh, he's so special in my life. If you'd have told me as a kid, you'd get to, not only you'd get to ever even meet that guy, but, you know, he'd be so special as he is to me. Um, you know, I, it's been a long, it was a long journey, but I finally got to, to work in Indianapolis. I got to work at WIBC, which was a goal of mine. I got to work at Wish TV. Um, you know, those are, those are really big goals of mine. And, and, uh, I really, I'm really honored that I got to do that. I still, I'm still pinch myself that WIBC, you know, and MS, you know, they call me and say, Hey, we want you to produce heroes of the 500 and we want you to be on beyond the bricks and things like that. Because, you know, I live in Columbus, Ohio now, you know, it'd be easy for them to say, Hey, you know, uh, you don't live here anymore. We can, we can move on, but, uh, they still ask me to be a part of it. So it, it's an honor to be, to be involved and to be on the show here with you, Jake, and, you know, this weekend, be on the coverage for the, the great weekend of racing we're going to have. So how did you get involved in radio and television and more specifically your involvement with the Indianapolis motor speedway? I started, believe it or not, in television when I was 17 years old. I was the sports editor of the Whitmer High School newspaper in Toledo, Ohio, the Panthers Paws, um, and Paws was P-A-U-S-E. And so um, I actually was the, I was the school, the sports editor, and they were looking for people to answer the phone on Friday night taking the scores back then. So they needed somebody to answer the phone and get the score uh, for the high school football games and then give those scores to the Chiron operator who put them in a long like crawl of scores and, and for the Chirons and things like that. So I started doing that and I did that for four or five weeks and I was honestly going to quit. I'll be honest with you. I was going to quit about four or five weeks into it. Cause I was like, you know, I don't know that I'm contributing anything here other than I pick up the phone and I find out that Whitmer beat St. Francis 35, seven or something like that. I just didn't feel like I was adding anything. And the, the sports director at the time was this great guy named Oris Tabner. And Oris said to me, he goes, well, I'm going to teach you how to edit videotape. And he taught me how to edit on the fly. I learned really quickly how to edit. I edited a Tigers-Orioles game, I think it was. And he said, give me what was called a shot sheet. He goes, tell me what you cut. And he goes, you're editing highlights for tonight's show. And I mean, I'm 17 years old. I don't, you know. And so I, I did it. And he came up to me after the show that night and he goes, 
from now on, he goes, you come in, he goes, you're my assistant every Friday night. And you know, you're never taking scores anymore. And he goes, you're going to help me produce the show every Friday night. And I'm thinking, well, this is great, you know? So I did that every Friday and Saturday night until the day after I graduated high school. And the day I graduated high school, they put me on the payroll as a, as an assistant sports producer at WTOL TV in Toledo, Ohio. And what was neat about that was we covered racing. We covered we covered uh, Michigan International Speedway, we covered Mid Ohio, and we came down every year to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway to cover stories at the Speedway. So we had Ron Hemelgarn, we had Hemelgarn Racing, which was from Toledo, obviously. We had Doug Shearson Racing at the time. They were from Adrian, Michigan, which is only a few miles away from Toledo. Uh, we had Champion Spark Plug was really heavily involved. They were Toledo-based. So we would do a series of reports every year. And I got that's how I actually got started coming down to the Speedway and covering stories. And it just blew, you know, just grew from there and grew from there. And so I was covering, I was covering stories from the time I was 18 years old at the Speedway. And so you have accumulated an incredible library of audio in the capacity of your journeys, Mike Thompson. And it is always a pleasure each and every night to share some of that audio to tell the stories of the personalities of the Indianapolis 500, the Allstate 400 at the Brickyard. And now, of course, as we know it, the Verizon 200 the Gallagher Grand Prix that we will be seeing this coming weekend. And that's what we're going to do tonight, including, and we will do this, I think, probably one more time before the week is over. But that is, Mike, talking about, and it's a little bit tricky, admittedly, because, and I will give an open disclaimer here, um, I grew up a diehard, diehard, diehard fan of the Indianapolis 500, a huge fan of the Indy 500. Lived it, ate it, breathed it, slept it, loved it. Um, You know, like Eddie Sachs said, you know, I, I think about it every day of the year. And in that capacity for the first 22 years of my life, 21 and 90%, there was no other race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway until the Brickyard 400 came around in 1994. And I think like a lot of people, Mike, I will readily admit that there was a like an optimism, but a cautious optimism and a little bit of a territorial feel for me. And the fact that I felt like it was great to see this new fan base and this new series running at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But at the same time, even though I never saw an attitude or a flex from the drivers or the crew chiefs or the owners of NASCAR cars, and for the most part, the fans, that they were bigger than the Speedway. I mean, I th- I think they came with the highest of reverence and, and you know, they, they made no bones about what that place meant to them. But I think for a lot of diehard Indianapolis 500 fans, there was a territorial, almost an insecurity of, you're welcome here, but don't get overly comfortable or feel like you can take your shoes off and put your feet on the couch. Does that make sense at all? Oh, yeah. No, I I agree. And I think from a fan base standpoint, I've been really lucky because, you know, where I grew up in Toledo, you know, we had Michigan International Speedway right up the road and I would go to the IndyCar events there and the NASCAR events there. So I had the best of both worlds. I got to see all the stars from NASCAR there and I got to see the stars of IndyCar there for the, you know, things like the Michigan 500. And, you know, it was best of both worlds for me because I was seeing everybody. So then when NASCAR came, to Indianapolis for me that was just like this is great you know this is what I've already I'm already doing this right but for the people I could see that if you're from you know if you're from Speedway Indiana 
they're almost the, the invaders at some level, right? They're, the, you know, this is a group that they're coming in and taking what's ours. And this is our, this is our place. And these are our traditions. And, you know, I can understand that a little bit. I never felt that way personally, just because, you know, where I grew up, we had both and it was so cool. And, and it was just neat to be able to see Richard Petty one week. And then a couple of weeks later, we saw Mario Andretti and, you know, AJ Foyt and all those guys. And that's just what I always dealt with. So, but I could understand, you know, from a fan standpoint, you know, it was just, it was something different completely. I, you know, if I would have lived in Speedway, I probably would have maybe felt that way. I would have maybe felt like hey, you know, like you just said, don't put your, get your feet on the, the coffee table because you, you may be kicked out in a couple of years. So there are those, as we talked about in the first installment of the Brickyard 400, that ran it, who had also already run the Indy 500. Danny Sullivan comes to mind. A.J. Foyt comes to mind. But before that, there were those who had already run the Indy 500 who had actually come over prior from NASCAR and from stock car racing, including two of them who might actually be as big a part of the skyrocket into the mainstream and beyond the esoteric regional nature of NASCAR that it had been until the late 70s. And two guys that were responsible for perhaps putting it on the map outside of the Southeast region as much as anybody. We're going to talk about those guys. We're going to take a look back at their time here in Indianapolis as well as their cup career. And we will hear from Donald Davidson about them as well. I'll tell you who they are when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. Kel Yarborough, one of those legendary names, certainly from a stock car standpoint. And this is a guy, Mike, before I knew much about, and when I was a kid growing up in Indianapolis, I didn't know a lot about stock car racing, truth be told. But I think most of us know that the 1979 Daytona 500 you tell me, Mike Thompson, you know more about stock car history than do I, so you tell me if I'm correct in saying this. Kale Yarborough was part of an incident in 1979 during the Daytona 500 that took NASCAR from kind of a good old boy regional southeastern sport to one that suddenly overnight kind of got itself on the map within the national lexicon. True or false? Absolutely true. 100% true. Yeah, that was one of the biggest moments in racing history because of the fact that a lot of the the uh, country was basically uh, covered in snow. You couldn't get out of your house because of, uh, you know, blizzards and things like that. So people were basically stuck inside. And in those days, not as many television channels. So people happened to be flipping around their channel. They saw a live sporting event from, you know, Daytona Beach, and then they're watching. And then on the last lap, uh, he's du dueling with Donnie Allison and the two, the two of the two leaders get together. Donnie throws a block. Kale gets into him. They both crash into the wall in the last lap. Richard Petty ends up winning uh, at the time, his sixth Daytona 500. And then there's a fight afterwards uh, on live television and 
yeah, I mean, it, it couldn't have gone any better for NASCAR that day. I mean, the first flag flag to flag broadcast of the Daytona 500 ends with a fight and and the two leaders crashing each other out. So you're you're 100 percent right. It was a huge, huge moment for NASCAR. So Cal Yarborough was a three time cup champion. He won the Daytona 500, if I'm not mistaken, four times. And it was in 1966, Mike, when he came over to the Indianapolis 500. He finished 28th in 1966, 17th a year later. Then back in 71, he finished 16th. He finally got a top 10 in the race that Mark Donahue won in 1972. But, Mike, how unusual was it then? I mean, Indianapolis was a race that, you know, it was probably the biggest race in the world. I don't think there's any doubt about that. It was one that you had Formula One World Champions running in. You know, you had multiple open-wheel drivers that would come over. But was it unusual for stock car guys to go ahead and dip their toe inside open-wheel racing? Yeah, I mean, it, it was. Uh, Kale was part of really what I consider the greatest field in Indianapolis 500 history in 1967. 66, he got caught up. Um, you know, in the first lap accident, really didn't even get to participate in the race. 67, he's part of what I consider the greatest field in history. Then he comes back. What I always think is interesting, though, about Cale Yarborough that I think doesn't get talked about enough. Cale Yarborough was a huge, huge NASCAR star by by the early 70s. I'm talking about 1970, 71. 1970s, 71, he leaves NASCAR essentially and runs a full schedule in IndyCars. 71 and 72, he only ran a total combined in those two years. He only ran nine NASCAR races total in those two years because he was concentrating on an IndyCar career, basically. So you had one of the biggest stars in NASCAR switching allegiances at that point, and he moved over to, to IndyCars and was trying to make a go of IndyCar. And I don't really think that gets talked about enough because, I mean, think about that. would be like right now if if Kyle Busch, you know, we talk about his, you know a lot of discussion right now about his contract that uh, is coming up at the end of the year with Joe Gibbs Racing. If, if Kyle Busch leaves at the end of the year and ends up in the Chip Ganassi number 10, that's basically what we're talking about. Cale Yarborough essentially left NASCAR and only ran a couple NASCAR races over a two-year period so he could concentrate on an IndyCar career those years. Again, three-time cup champion, four-time Indy 500 starter, Cale Yarborough. Here is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson with his recollections on Cale Yarborough. Cale Yarborough drove in uh, four 500s and, in fact, was only entered four times. And uh, uh, the, the brief version is that that's 66, 67, 70, and 71. And he was actually entered in 68 but, but never came uh, because um, – of uh, NASCAR conflict, so uh, the entry came in early uh, when it was full head back and uh, roll of Allstead, Bryant Heating and Cooling, and they would try to get the first entry in all the time, and I believe in uh, that uh, uh, 68, I believe that was the first entry to come in and be announced, but within a matter of days, uh, they they had to make a change because Kale wasn't going to be available after all, and Arnie Canapa was the driver. Anyway, uh, Kale's first year was 66. And he drove for, uh, actually, Rolla Volstead was uh, in partnership with um, uh, Jim Robbins. And uh, he drove the car that had w- was new in 64, driven by Len Sutton, and then 65 by Billy Foster. And that was Kale's ride for 66. And he didn't get very far. Uh, came down the straightaway, and there was this accident that actually involved his teammate, uh, Billy Foster, 
and uh, just a, a huge accident going into turn one. No injuries except for Foyt uh, climbing the fence and cutting his thumb as he went over. And uh, I remember the um, uh, on uh, the, the, the one of the documentary films that was made of that race. They had uh, several voices of drivers, and you didn't see them; you just heard the the voices. And uh, Cal Yarbers is quite distinctive because he says, "Oh no, it can't be." And uh, anyway, he was out of that uninjured, as were the rest of them. And in '67, he was back uh, to drive for Volstead with Bryant's sponsorship. And he had a little bit of a difficult day. There was a couple of spins, and, and uh, the, the final one was uh, within sight of the finish when he tangled with Mel Kenyon. And Kenyon was um, running in ninth, and they both uh, spun down uh, to the inside. Uh, Kenyon stayed at the cockpit. And again, I haven't watched this for years and years and years. And Cal uh, uh, Yarbrough gets out of the cockpit and goes over to Kenyon and then very quickly turns around and then walks away. And I'm just assuming that Mel Kenyon probably said a very un-Mel Kenyon-like thing to him. And uh, so anyway, the, the finishing position was 17th. And then I mentioned 68 that he was entered, but uh, very quickly uh, w- withdrew because of NASCAR commits. So 69, he wasn't entered. Uh, 70, he wasn't entered. And then 71 and 72, he drove for Gene White. And uh, in 71, uh, he they, and he was uh, teammates with Lloyd Ruby in, in both years. And, boy, they really hit it off. And uh, Kale dropped out late in the 71 race to get a 16th place finish. And then in 72, with the Bill Daniels GOP special, painted red, white, and blue like an American flag, uh, or similar to to, uh, to an American flag, and, and he finished 10th, which was by far his best uh, position uh, finish. And then that's the last time he was here as a driver. But he spoke very fondly of coming to the Speedway. I think he wanted to do it from the time that, that uh, he was quite young. And uh, he was, uh, I think he stayed at the Howard Johnson's out by... Um, 465 in Crawfordsville. I don't know that for sure, except that we, in talking with him one time, uh, he talked about driving to the track and getting in a terrible traffic jam for qualifications. And uh, he said eventually he had to pull over to the side of the road and then uh, walk the rest of the way. So we figured it was somewhere on Crawfordsville Road, and uh, it, it must have been uh, from the Howard Johnsons. But anyway, he um, had uh, very fond memories of... Uh, of being at the track, and and uh, the surprising thing about Cale Yarbrough, he was immensely strong, but not tall. Cale Yarbrough, again, involved, I guess, maybe he didn't have much reach when he had that fight with Donnie Allison, because he wasn't overly tall, but strong, so perhaps he got in a shiner on Donnie Allison in 1979 in the Daytona 500. That would have been eight years after the only time the two of them shared the track in the Indianapolis 500, because Donnie Allison drove in 1971 and the year before in 1970. 1970, no Cale Yarborough, but 1971, both of them in the race. And Donnie Allison, two top 10 finishes and his only two starts in Indianapolis. He finished fourth in 1970. He finished sixth in 1971. Here is Donald Davidson on Donnie Allison. Donnie Allison, of all of the NASCAR guys who came up here, uh, he had the best record 
Uh, he, he was only here twice, 1970 and 71. He drove for A.J. Foyt both times. And in 70, he finished fourth. And I, I, apparently he had driven some open wheel, but they were sort of like up the modified variety. And, and I don't know if he'd ever driven sprint cars, certainly not with a major organization. We do know that. But anyway, he drove a Foyt, uh, uh, not a backup car, but he, he drove a Foyt entry and finished fourth. And he won the Rookie of the Year award. Uh, the following year, he was back with Foyt. He, he qualified and got bumped and then uh, qualified another car for Foyt and then uh, finished sixth. And those are the only two starts that he had. So he had a fourth and a sixth, by far the best record of, of any of the, the NASCAR regulars that uh, came up to try the Speedway. But there's, there's a little story that I, I think you really uh, have to take your hat off to him. I thought this had happened two years in a row. I was thinking that he had run the, the uh, Charlotte World 600 uh, the day after the 500, two years in a row, but it didn't quite work out that way. In 1970, uh, the World 600 had actually been the previous Sunday, and uh, he finished second with Bobby Allison as the relief driver. Then then uh, six days later, he was up to run the 500, which in 1970 was on a Saturday. In 1971, the 500 was on a Saturday again, and the Charlotte World 600 was the next day. Now get this. Donnie Allison finishes sixth in the 500, leaves shortly thereafter, goes down to Charlotte. The next day he wins the World 600. You can't see this happening anymore. Wrapped up the victory lane ceremonies in a hurry, got back on a plane and flew back up to Indianapolis to go to the victory banquet. And I don't know how many people would do that, but there he was sitting uh, down at the, uh, back in those days, it was still, I think it was still at the uh, Marat Temple, or it might have moved to the convention center by then. But anyway, in 1971, here's Donnie Allison at the Victory Banquet to accept for sixth place, and he had won the World 600 that afternoon. I thought that was just a, a, a fine, fine gesture on his part. When we come back, a couple of guys that are the namesakes of those of which we've already mentioned, to an extent, I guess, we'll explain when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. Nice to have you over here in the state. The incredible thing is the different concept on ovals, and some people just can't get it right. Four champions sharing a winning formula, Pavilion Formula 3. you got to stay flat out. Sounds rather appealing. But it is if you win. Complete professionals who rely on the same complete protection you can buy right off the shelf. I'm wide open all the time. Hey, only way to do it. Pavilion Formula 3 motor oil from Texaco. Why do you go anti-clockwise? You're in a foreign country, boy. <laughs> The high-energy 1993 Havoline commercial, A.J. Foyt, Nigel Mansell, Mario Andretti, and I believe, was it Bobby Allison or Davey Allison that was in there? That's Davey that, in that commercial. Davey that spot. Yep. And while we're talking and Paul, about Davey and Allison. That's Paul, and that's Paul Newman actually voicing that commercial. Well, that would make sense, of course, because that was a key sponsor for Newman Haas Racing back in those days. And, Mike, you had a comment on, on Donnie Allison uh, as well as we're talking about his crossover into the Indianapolis 500 from NASCAR. Well, what's cool about Donnie Allison is he really 
cared about being in the Indianapolis 500. So a few years ago, I got lucky and bought um, these patches, right? So people may know about the Champion 100 Mile an Hour Club. And Champion, in the late 80s, they made um, patches to basically they were replacement patches for those drivers who you know maybe their patches had frayed or things like that who had you know had earned a right to be in the champion 100 mile an hour club so um the person who kind of spearheaded that project uh, he had passed away and i ended up with a i don't know a couple hundred of these patches and Donnie Allison found out that I had these patches and Donnie Allison never got his patches for being in the champion hundred mile an hour club, because after he qualified, the, the banquet was canceled the next year, the club disbanded and for 1971, they never had a banquet in 71. So he never got his hundred mile an hour club patches for, to, to make a jacket with. So he found out about it. And so I sent him a, a couple patches and he was just thrilled. He wrote me the nicest letter in the world and just, you know, was so happy that he got his patches. And he was like, now I feel like I'm finally in the club, you know, 30 some plus years after qualifying for the club. He goes, now I'm finally in the club because I got my champion 100 mile an hour patches. So it still meant something to him decades later, uh, the Indianapolis 500 and the champion 100 mile an hour club. I think it's great whenever you hear stories. I know that Kurt Busch, Donald Davidson has told me on numerous occasions, Kurt Busch, when he was a rookie in the Indy 500, uh, had a great reverence for it and actually had Donald go through and show him the wall in the museum of the different rookie classes and go over it with them. And, you know, he was just thrilled, thrilled to be a part of that. I had mentioned namesakes of the two guys we're talking about. We led the show on Beyond the Bricks. Good evening to you, by the way. My name is Jake Quarry. That is the voice of Mike Thompson. We talked about Cale Yarborough and we talked about Donnie Allison so far. Now, I think a lot of people would imagine that Cale Yarborough is related to of course, another what looks very close, Leroy Yarbrough, but there's an O missing. These two, not unlike Howdy Wilcox and Howdy Wilcox, the second of Indy 500 lore, am I correct in saying, like, similar names not related? Correct. Not, not only are they not related, the names are not spelled the same at all. Right. One uh, O so, difference, right? Yes. So what's funny, I get a lot of people who ask me from autograph collectors who say, oh, I need Kale Yarbrough and his brother Leroy Yarbrough. And I'm like, well, not only are they not brothers, their, their names aren't even spelled the same. So, uh, it, yeah, correct. They're not related, nor are their names spelled the same. Technically, it is Kale Yarbrough and Leroy Yarbrough. Just one O in the last name for Leroy. But... An accomplished driver, without question. The 1969 Daytona 500 winner. He won the Southern 500 in the same year, the World 600 in that year. That was NASCAR's Triple Crown. He was the first to win that in 1969, the native of Jacksonville, Florida. But he was a polarizing figure, not only, of course, as any driver would be on the track, but off it as well. And the history of him, pardon the pun, would be one that is checkered, but nonetheless accomplished. He did run the Indianapolis 500. Again, all of those that we're talking about tonight from a cup standpoint did exactly that. He ran in 1967, 69, and 1970, finishing 27th in his rookie year, 23rd a year later, and 19 in year number three. Here is Donald Davidson on the complicated story of Leroy Yarborough. Uh, I personally thought, I mean, he was one of several NASCAR drivers that came to the Speedway. And although the results don't show it, I felt that he adapted as well as anybody, and uh, Leroy Abra did not finish in any of the three that he drove. But I always felt that, um, I mean, he really stood on it hard and uh, would qualify quite well. And in 69 especially, 
he was up in the lead quartet for a while uh, before dropping out. But the first year he was at the track was 65, and he took part of his rookie test with uh, J. Frank Harrison, who was running stock block Chevys at that time. And then in 66, it looked like uh, he'd have a great shot with a team called GCR, which was Grissom, Cooper, and Jim Rathman. Gus Grissom and Gordon Cooper, the astronauts, and uh, Jim Rathman, the 60 winner, they were all good friends and formed this corporation that ran uh, 66 and 67, but, uh, with, but with not a great deal of success. And their driver in 66 was Leroy Arbora, and uh, they couldn't seem to get going, and so no qualifying attempt was made. In fact, they put Greg Weld in the car at the last minute on uh, the last qualifying day for a practice run, or, or in the middle of the afternoon, perhaps it was, and uh, Greg did spin and contact the wall, and so that uh, that knocked them out. In 67, uh, he started out uh, with Gene White. He was a teammate with Lloyd Ruby uh, for the Gene White uh, team. Had a crash in practice. Poor guy was probably just always trying too hard. And uh, he did start the race for Jim Robbins, but uh, didn't finish. In 68, he could have made it. He was in one of the wedge-shaped turbines and was actually in the qualifying line on the first day and then was unceremoniously uh, removed from the cockpit in the line. And Art Pollard got in and then uh, qualified the car uh, to become teammates to Graham Hill and Joe Leonard. So uh, that, and I think Leroy was in some other cars, but he didn't make the race. And then uh, 69 and 70, well, for Jim Robbins, dropped out both years. 71 looked like a good shot. Uh, he was driving for Dan Gurney. Gurney had just retired, and so Leroy was um, Bobby Unser's uh, teammate. And uh, they he actually went to Trenton. He must have joined USAC to do that, and I have to think about how that worked out because he basically was an NASCAR driver, and uh, they, because of the international... Uh, exchange of drivers, he would be able to come and run Indianapolis without joining USAC, just the same as USAC drivers could go and run uh, Daytona and, and other major NASCAR races without joining NASCAR. But uh, anyway, he finished third at Trenton, came to Indianapolis, and had another crash. And I think he probably got his bell rung in that one, and uh, he never drove after that here. But he did have great success in stock cars, and uh, he was a very nice guy, very quiet. And uh, I actually met him in the white front on West 16th Street, and he was sitting with Bill Cheeseburg. So uh, that's that's how I first met him. And then another time, it must have been uh, maybe a year or two after that, uh, I actually was leaving the track uh, one afternoon. And I saw him walking up, and this this is the old, outside the old garage area, and the parking lot wasn't very big. And I saw him wandering up and down, and I pulled up and I said, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I'm supposed to drive somebody's car that's out in the lot here, and I haven't been able to find it. I said, well, jump in, and we'll go up and down the aisles and see if we can find it, which we did. So I can actually say I drove a passenger car with Leroy Ibera, uh, riding in my car, but uh, anyway, uh, he uh, um, 
he he did ABC TV for a while, uh, doing pit interviews. I thought he did a great job, and uh, so it was very sad when uh, he started to become uh, uh, sick. Uh, apparently, a couple of those headshots were taking their toll, and then uh, he eventually passed away. I don't remember when that was, but I think sometime probably early to mid 80s, and uh, Leroy passed away. Passed away of a seizure, as a matter of fact, on December 6th of 1984. And Leroy, as I had mentioned, Mike, a, a complicated later life in particular, when he did fall into a mental illness, he was he strangled his mother, fortunately not fatally. Another family member intervened, um, but he was charged for attempted first-degree murder and with that, he was found not guilty um, because he was unable to distinguish right from wrong at the time of the incident. So a very um, polarizing, I guess you would say, and involved story in the later years, tragically, I guess, of Leroy Yarborough. Yeah, it's a definitely a tragic story. And I, I want to recommend to anyone who wants to learn more about Leroy Yarborough. If you remember, Jake, there was a, a magazine called Inside Sports back in the day, making the early 80s. Um, and they did an article on Leroy Yarbrough called Leroy, He Ain't Home No More. And it came out in 1980, I think it was. And it talked about what Leroy Yarbrough, what happened with him. And this was obviously before we learned about CTE and things like that and concussion protocols and things. And it talked about all the severe head injuries that Leroy Yarbrough had gotten in racing and what it had done to his mind, basically. So I really recommend anybody who's interested in learning a little bit more about Leroy Arborough to read that article. Finally, the last guy that I said we would talk about, and we only have about a minute left, not to in any way, shape, or form short him because he was certainly accomplished, and that is Bobby Allison. This is a guy that, when you talk about his history as a race car driver, Mike, as good as any, 1973, he finished 32nd in the Indianapolis 500. He returned and finished seven spots higher in 19. 19- 75 but bobby allison another one along with his brother donnie that key parts of the history of stock cars at the indianapolis 500 yeah absolutely i mean he came as part of the penske team in 73 didn't have much fun at all um actually he had it was expected he would never come back to be honest with you because he and his wife had said they didn't have any fun at all in 73 nobody really had any fun in 73 because it was such a terrible month uh 75 though he did come back and uh, he, he lasted about 112 laps. He actually did lead a lap in 75, but uh, a short career for a guy that a lot of people expected would have, you know, a, a lot better record at Indianapolis, but one of the true all-time greats, of course, obviously in NASCAR. Interesting to think that 50 years from now, there might be two guys doing a radio show that are talking about, for example, A.J. Allmendinger because of the fact that he was leading the Indianapolis 500-mile race late in the race might have won the race, but he had to come in because a seatbelt got loose, and that might have cost him an Indy 500. But then, and we shall see, historically speaking, what this will mean years from now in the annals, but the first road course race for stock cars in terms of NASCAR at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, it was A.J. Allmendinger that won that race one year ago. Can he make it two for two? We'll find that out this weekend but tomorrow night we'll talk more about the other faces and figures that have etched their name in history at ims when we return tomorrow night to beyond the bricks